We believe our spiritual life matters. In Lewis Carroll's Alice in Wonderland, Alice is walking through the forest and meets the Cheshire cat, and she asks the question, uh, which way should I go? And he said, well, where are you trying to be? And she said, well, it doesn't really matter as long as, and then he interrupts her and says, then it doesn't make any difference which way you go. If you don't know where you're going, it doesn't matter which road you take, which direction you go. Now, when we think about our spiritual life, Proverbs 14, 12 tells us that there is a way that seems right to a man. That many people are on spiritual journeys today, and they're on something that feels right to them. It feels good. And yet, Paul reminds us that there really is only one genuine spiritual journey that will lead us to eternity with God the Father, and that is through Jesus. Take your Bibles this morning and turn me to 1 Timothy chapter 1. 1 Timothy chapter 1 may say 2 Timothy because I sent the wrong verses to Julie this week. So anyway, if it says that in your bulletin or your worship guide, that is absolutely all on me. First Timothy chapter one. One and two are next to each other on that keyboard. You know, sometimes you just hit... Mm. And it doesn't spell check when you hit one or two on accident. Now, some words you misspell and it spell checks, but it doesn't do that for one or two. First Timothy chapter one, pick up verse number 12. I give thanks to Jesus Christ, our Lord, who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, appointing me to the ministry. Even though I formerly, I was formerly a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man. But I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. This saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst of them. But I received mercy for this reason so that in me the worst of them Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. With that, let's pray. Father, thank you for uh, your word and God, I pray today that you would speak to us about our spiritual life and the spiritual path that we are on. In your name, amen. 
Our spiritual journey is very important because it matters not only in life, but in eternity. Our spiritual life and our spiritual path is not only going to determine earthly choices, but our eternal destiny. Paul, as he's writing to Timothy, he's writing to a young pastor. He begins in verse number three of chapter one and writes about false teachers who are filled up with fables and myths and endless genealogies. And he says, look, man, they're trying to preach this message, but it just isn't isn't right. It isn't where it is. And so, Timothy, I want you to understand, again, just fresh and new through my testimony, the power and transformation and eternal life that only comes through Jesus. There are many today on spiritual journeys. You're on a spiritual journey. But many are, are walking in different ways with different ideas and different thoughts, and yet they miss the eternal truths that are in God's word that Paul is going to drive home in Timothy's life. As he opens this section and just saying, man, I give thanks to the Lord, and then opens up and shares his testimony. As we think about our spiritual life and our spiritual journey, we, we really start with kind of the, the bad news here. And that is, is that we all really have a spiritual problem. And that is, we are sinners. We all have a spiritual problem. We are sinners. Paul doesn't deny that. He, he recognizes that very clearly as, as he calls himself uh, the chief among sinners or the worst among sinners in 1 Timothy 1.15. He says this is a faithful saying and it's, uh, it, it deserves wide, broad approval and acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Now, Paul, throughout all of his early life, was seeking to find God's approval through his pedigree and through his works. Now, if you look in Philippians chapter 3, Paul tells us a lot about his life. He was born among God's chosen people, the Jewish people. He said that he was in the tribe of Benjamin, that he was a Hebrew among Hebrews, that he was a Pharisee who was one who was a religious leader who would have known the law, who would have kept the law, who would have helped to enforce uh, the, the laws of the Old Testament. He was uh, zealous for the things of God. And yet, Paul says in Philippians chapter 3 and verse number 7, all those things that I thought could be put on my account. You're doing good, Paul. This is helping you get closer to God. Hey, Paul, man, you're really deserving of all this. Like I'm climbing up some kind of ladder. Paul says, no, I now count all of them as loss. They mean nothing. Some of you today might be trying to lean on family. My dad was a pastor. My grandfather was a deacon. I had a, a, an uncle who planted a church. And, and listen, like Paul, that's, that's good and helpful, but it is not something that helps to attain salvation. That is all loss as far as helping us to attain salvation. Matter of fact, it may hinder us because if we're leaning on somebody else and not dealing directly with God in our own life, then we are hindering our spiritual path. Paul says, no, man, look at my problems. But as we think about our life and think about my life and your life, we all commit sinful acts. All of us, 
We all commit sinful acts. Romans 3.23 tells us that all have sinned. Paul here, he says that he was a, a blasphemer. He, he goes in and, and he really describes the sinfulness of his own life. He says, I was a blasphemer, a persecutor, and an arrogant man in verse number 13. I was a blasphemer. I reviled and insulted the person of Christ and the people of Christ. I was a persecutor who sought to cause harm and damage to those who mentioned the name of Jesus. And the word arrogant man here gives the picture that, that in some kind of sadistic way, he would arrogantly hurt people and get a sense of pleasure out of that. Now, you remember Paul's life. Acts chapter 8 and verse number 1, after Timothy has, has, or after Stephen has just preached to the religious leaders of that day, then, then we find that they begin to take up stones. He has confronted, Stephen has confronted the Jewish people and said, look, you have missed Jesus just like you ignored all the other prophets who were before him. And they picked up stones and it says that, in some of the versions it says that they laid their coat at the feet of a man named Saul. Or he was there consenting to his death. Saul was not only a blasphemer and a persecutor, but he was so arrogant to think that I'm doing God a work by killing this man and then getting a sense of joy out of it. Now, we're all sinners. We may not have blasphemed Jesus. We may not have persecuted believers. But all of us, at some time in our life, have thought something, said something, or done something that has disqualified us from a perfect heaven with a perfect God. All of us. So our sin might not be exactly the same, but the consequences of sin are the same. That the wages of sin is death. Because of our sinfulness, we are separated from God. But not only do we find that everyone commits sinful acts, but we also find that everyone is born in unbelief. Everyone is born in unbelief. Notice how Paul puts it in verse number 13. He says, I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. What's he saying? I was born in this ignorance and unbelief. This is what David would echo in Psalm 51 and verse number 5. In Psalm 51 and verse 5, David, David says this, Indeed, I was guilty when I was born. I was sinful when my mother conceived me. Or Ephesians chapter 2, verse number 3, it says that we are by nature children of wrath. The picture is, is that all of us are born with a sin nature. Now, we think about babies in our day, and I've given you this illustration lots of times. But you don't have to teach a baby to be selfish. That's very natural. You have to teach a baby to share. Actually, you don't even have to teach a baby to, to tell the truth, I mean, to, to, to lie, because they pick that up on their own. You have to teach a baby to tell the truth. There's that picture that what is on the inside naturally comes out through our actions. And, and you know that one of those babies' first words that they learn and they exercise in their own will, and their own sinful nature comes out, and they say, no. 
You have to teach a, a baby, a child, that the world doesn't orbit around them. They come into this world selfish, thinking, hey, I was born on the throne. Now everyone should please me. Everyone should do for me. And yet as parents then, our responsibility is to teach them, to discipline them, to show the moral truth of God's word to them so that they understand they are a valuable member of the family, but they do not sit on the throne of the family. Well, while we're speaking about babies, our family is going to grow and we're very excited. Luke and Melanie are going to have a baby, so we're very excited about that. And that baby will be born just like all of us with that nature and with that sense of unbelief. And that's why we teach and that's why we instruct. You know, as we think about it this way, if you would look at your life and you would think, man, this, uh, this book here would represent all the things I've ever done wrong. And you would look at it, and man, that's really small writing. And there's a lot of pages in this book. And, and some of you, as you look at your life, this sinfulness is attached to your life. And you can't get rid of it by having a daddy who's a pastor. Matter of fact, whether your dad is a pastor or a pauper or a prince or a prisoner, we are all born with this nature to sin and we all act in sin. And so, here we are. We're stuck with all these sins attached to our life. Now, is, is this book and the small writing in it is here. Honestly, as I look out here today, I realize this doesn't do justice, so I may have to grab a little bigger book, right? Okay. The, the picture is, is that though we may not have all sinned like Paul, we are all sinners. And that's the bad news. But then that leads us to the good news of 1 Timothy 1.15, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. Notice those, those words and those exact words, he came to save sinners. So we have a spiritual problem, but Jesus is the spiritual solution. We need Jesus. The answer to, to our spiritual journey is not, can I, can I do more? Can I give more? Can I go to church more? It's, can I see who Jesus is and trust him alone? I heard about the group of scouts that uh, were sent off on a project of goodwill. And as they uh, came back, man, their clothes were all tattered and, and uh, they were untucked and, and they looked like they'd been through a fight. And they said, what have you guys been doing? And he said, uh, we've been helping little old ladies cross the road. And he says, and you look like that? He said, well, they really didn't want to go. So uh, anyway, <laughs> I, I mean, trusting our own, our own good works will never get us there. But here we find the message of Jesus. Now, Paul doesn't go into depth into all the aspect of his testimony. 
We know in Acts chapter 9 that Paul was on the road to Damascus ready to persecute believers and Jesus spoke to him and said, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And then Saul has this amazing personal conversion with Jesus and Though he was blinded there for a little while, his spiritual eyes were finally opened to the person of Christ. Today, some of you, I I pray that you would understand that it is not by doing something that you can ultimately get to heaven. It's not. It tells us that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, and it is trusting him alone As Paul would speak in Acts 16, 31 to a Philippian jailer, he would say, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and you will be saved. It's believing. It's trusting that Jesus died on the cross to pay the penalty for my sin and he rose again on the third day and now offers us the free gift of eternal life. That book of all those bad things was attached to my life and there was no way for me to get rid of it on my own. And whether I had a big book or a little book or you know, I had a, a big book with lots of multiple volumes, the truth is, is whether I had a small book in my opinion or a big book, all of the, any of that book would keep me out of heaven. But now Jesus says, look, I paid the price for those sins. I paid it in full. And then Paul shows us in this passage the characteristics of what salvation involves. And he gives us four characteristics of what is really involved in salvation. First off, he shares that mercy is involved. Notice with me, as Paul thinks and shows us about mercy, notice in verse number 13, I received mercy because I acted out of ignorance and unbelief. Ignorance is never an excuse before the Lord, by the way. But he does show us mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is God withholding judgment and not giving us what we deserve. That is mercy. At the moment of our first sin, in our first willful moment of rebellion, the Lord could have said, enough! And cast us away from him forever. But instead, out of mercy, he withheld his judgment. But there's not only mercy involved here. Notice also grace is involved. Notice what he says uh, down in verse number 14. And the grace of our Lord overflowed. So mercy is withholding judgment that I deserve. Grace then gives me something that I don't deserve. That's undeserved. So I get this picture of of God withholding the judgment that I deserve and then giving me something I don't deserve. And that is the free gift of his son. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son. That's a gift of grace. God withholds his judgment and doesn't strike us dead. Instead, he says, look, I want to give you something that you can't earn or deserve on your own. And then he goes on in that same verse, number 14. And he says that the grace of our Lord overflowed along with the faith and love that are in Christ. So how do we receive that gift? By faith. By faith. We receive that gift by faith. It is not of working. It is not of holding to family legacy or family spiritual dynasty. It is by faith. 
For by grace are you saved through faith, he would write the church at Ephesus. So it is believing in Jesus Christ alone as the only way of salvation and trusting that his work on the cross was sufficient to pay the penalty for all of my sin. And that's my only hope. But then he says the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. There, now we see again, for God so loved that he would offer his son out of love and then he would carry on this love relationship with us in our life. This beautiful picture of mercy and grace and faith and love. What an awesome picture that God would withhold his judgment and instead give you something you don't deserve, the free gift of salvation, and say, all you have to do is believe, and out of my love, I give this to you, and I want to walk in a personal love relationship with you for now and eternity. That's the greatest gift that anyone could ever receive. And some of you today, maybe you've held on to everything else, and the Lord's speaking today and saying, look, trust Jesus, trust Jesus alone. Is Jesus sufficient to forgive me of the things I've done wrong? Is the cross really sufficient for me? You probably have never heard of a Wisconsin pastor named Ray Ratcliffe. But Ray Ratcliffe, in his book, Dark Journey, Deep Grace writes about the opportunity that he had to share Jesus with Jeffrey Dahmer in prison. And how Jeffrey Dahmer, in his, in his, uh, the, the pastor's testimony and in Dahmer's own testimony, would have prayed to receive Christ as Savior. Heinous sin. Unbelievable darkness in that journey. But it's not a question of his sin. It's a question of the cross's sufficiency. And when Jesus said, it is finished, and the debt was paid in full, it was paid in full. Sometimes that might rub us the wrong way. Could someone be so vile and so cruel and so tormenting. His grace, his grace is sufficient. As we think about this journey in our life, there's only one way. We all have a spiritual problem, and the only way that spiritual problem can be solved is through Jesus. Then, Jesus begins, as he comes into our life, to, to change and make us new. And as he changes us and makes us new, then Jesus gives us a new sense of spiritual life. And we over here who were sinners now can be saints. And Paul over here, who was a consenting murderer, now is going to be a missionary. 
And so notice what we, what we see. In Jesus, now we have spiritual life and we are examples. Notice as Paul says in verse 16, I received mercy for, me, for this reason, so that in me, the worst of them, Christ Jesus might demonstrate his extraordinary patience as an example to those who would believe in him for eternal life. Paul says this, I'm an example. If Jesus could save me, he can save you. If Jesus can change me, he can change you. And now Paul, as this spiritual example, now begins to take up this mantle of having a new life in Christ. Because our spiritual life doesn't end when we pray for Jesus to come into our life and forgive us of sin. That's when it begins. And that's where the excitement and the transformation begins to take place. And so now as, as believers, we are spiritually now involved in spiritual growth. Spiritual growth, we begin to grow spiritually in our life. And we walk in this closer relationship with the Lord. And the things that we used to do, we don't want to do them anymore. And the path that we're now on, we want to grow closer to him. And the longer we serve him, the sweeter he grows. And every day with Jesus is better than the day before. And we find that as we walk on this path, that the Lord is taking and conforming us to the image of his son as Romans 8 as Romans 8:29 challenges us. Our path is going to involve spiritual growth. That's what happened in Paul's life. Paul would go off and he would spend time alone. He would spend time with the church and then he would spend time alone with the Lord and then he would come back and he began to preach and he becomes the prolific writer of the New Testament showing and shining the spiritual growth and the life change that Jesus made in him. Your spiritual growth and your spiritual life and your spiritual zest. Listen, it is to be an example to the world that Jesus has changed me. And whether you came to know Christ as a young child and you've walked with the Lord for many, 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 many years, or you've just come to know Jesus, there is to be spiritual life and spiritual growth that permeates us and gives us a heart for the things of God, spiritual growth. But then notice what we see in Paul's life as well, not only spiritual growth, but notice back up in verse number 12. He says, I give thanks to Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's gratitude. Can I ask you today, are you a grateful person? You look around and other people have more and other people have better. But are you a grateful person? Because if you have Jesus, you have what's best. I love the word thanks that is used here. The word thanks that is used here is the word charis in the Greek. It is the word grace. I give grace and thanks to the Lord. Have you ever wondered why some people say, hey, you know, we're gonna give grace for our food? Who's going to say grace? Sometimes they say that before we eat, okay? Sometimes we say, oh, we're, who's gonna thank the Lord for their food? And some people say, who's gonna say grace? It's the same word in, in the Greek. It's the word charis. Lord, I, I, I recognize you are the giver of all things. 
every good and perfect gift is from you. And that everything that I need pertaining to life and godliness, God has given me through Jesus and through his spirit who lives in me. Which reminds me that as I walk on my spiritual path, I am absolutely equipped along the way to do whatever God calls me to do. In him, he's given me all things that pertain to life and godliness. So I have spiritual growth and I have gratitude. And then I'm to be a witness. I'm to be a witness. Paul would say, This is a trustworthy saying or in the New King James, this is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners and I am the worst, I am the chief. What's he doing? He's sharing his testimony. He's a witness. He's sharing his testimony. He's saying, man, at one time I didn't know the Lord, but this is faithful saying, Jesus came to save sinners and he has saved me. We're a witness you're a witness. You, you may be a really good one through your life and your words and your works, or you may be really a poor one. But as we look just a few weeks back, Jesus called believers salt and light. You may be pretty contaminated salt and a pretty dingy light, dim light. But the picture is, is once we come to know Jesus, we are a witness. And when we remember how much he's done for us and we give thanks to him for all of his blessings in Christ. Listen, you may have a bazillion dollars and I'm happy if you do. But can I tell you, man, you got a lot to be accountable for before the Lord. But if you have Jesus, you have something way better than money. You may have a really, really nice house and I hope you do. I I say that honestly. I I don't begrudge anybody having anything. I really don't. I'm happy if you can live in in, in a a beautiful, large home. I'm I'm happy for you. I really, really am. But I want to tell you, you have something better than a home and a car and clothes and money in your 401k or 403b. And we've watched over the last few weeks that has gone the wrong way. But I wonder, has our mental attitude and our questioning of the sufficiency of the Lord dampened our heart as the markets have moved the wrong way and that we're trusting in the stock market more than we're trusting in the Savior. The picture is, as Paul says, man, I give thanks to the Lord and I am a witness for the Lord. And then there is worship. (laughs) Paul, I, I love verse 17 because actually, I just really believe that Paul can't stand it anymore. He's thinking about his life. He's thinking about his walk. He's thinking about his sin. He's thinking about being the worst among sinners, the chief sinner. And now he's thinking about being saved. Jesus being in his life. And he cries out, now to the king. God, you are everything. You are the owner of it all. You are the creator and sustainer of all things. You are the king. You are immortal. There is no decay or corruption. 
You are eternal. You will last and live forever and ever. And from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. And there has never been a day when you did not rule over the vast universe and the world around us. And there never will be a day when you do not remain as king. And you're invisible. I can't see you with my physical eyes, but I see your work with my physical eyes and I know your hand with my eyes of faith and I've experienced your touch. You are amazing. Now to the king, immortal, invisible, the only God. To him, be honor and glory forever and ever. I pray that singing about giving God glory forever and ever will not just be something that we say and we think, yeah, when we get to heaven, we'll do that. Instead, we start now. We started the day we came to know Jesus saying, look, man, I'm going to be one who worships forever and ever from now on. There will come a day when you don't need somebody standing up here on a platform. And that's why on Sundays, when I'm sitting right down here in the front, man, I want to worship, and I want to worship with focus and enthusiasm, and I want to focus with my heart, because one day I know I'm going to be doing that forever. This job's just, I'm just an interim gig here, okay? I mean, this is not going to last long but I know that is going to last forever. So I would encourage you, you may not be that musical. That may not have a great appeal to you, but you are going to be a worshiper forever. So sometime between now and when you step over to the other side, you might want to practice a little bit and get used to that, okay? Now to the king, immortal, Invisible, the only wise God, the only God. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Do you know him? Do you know him? I'm not asking you if you're a member here. Do you know him? Believer, are you focused on him? And all that he's done for you. Maybe the spiritual heart that was once a fire has now dampened and got distracted by all the things of the world and the Lord's calling you today. And says, I'm the king. Come and worship joyfully for what I've done for you. Would you bow your head and close your eyes? And I want to ask you today, do you know that you know Jesus as Savior Christ came into the world to save sinners. If you don't know that for certain today, that's a number one question. Jesus lived a perfect life and died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sin, and he rose again. And Romans ten thirteen says, whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. And some of you, you have been in church literally all of your life 
but somewhere along the way you have lost your flame and your fervency. Maybe because of job, life distractions, temptations, something along the way. I want to encourage you today. Your spiritual life and your spiritual passion really matters. So what will you do today to say, Lord, I need to restoke that flame Do you need to repent of some things? Do you need to clear your desk of some things? Do you need to set aside some time with the Lord? What do you need to do to rekindle that love relationship with him? The most important aspect of your life is your love relationship with God. And Father, I pray that you take these next moments of invitation and reflection, God, that you would move in Jesus' powerful and wonderful name, the name of our Savior, we pray. Amen.